Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio, I'm Jason Bellamy. The 2016 Olympic Games just wrapped up in Rio with a week's worth of track and field, the single sport that with its wide variety of events perhaps best exemplifies the Olympic motto, Sidious Altius Fortius, faster, higher, stronger. How do elite athletes get faster, higher, and stronger? With a smart training program that seeks to maximize performance and minimize injury. That's the kind of program that physical therapist Shannon Singletary oversees at Old Miss, where he directs the health and sports performance team that cares for all of the University of Mississippi's varsity athletes. We talked to Shannon just before the track and field events were about to get underway in Rio, and in this episode of Move Forward Radio, he provides valuable advice to youth athletes who want to excel in the various disciplines of track and field or any sport. He also takes us behind the curtain at Ole Miss to describe their coordinated approach to athletic training and rehabilitation. Here's our conversation with physical therapist Shannon Singletary. Shannon, you're the Senior Associate Athletics Director at Health and Sports Performance at Ole Miss. So what's under that umbrella? First of all, let me just say that health and sports performance is a comprehensive uh, approach to health care. And our common goal is to look at not only the body but also the mind as, as we deliver health care services and performance services to our athletes. What that would encompass is athletic training, physical therapy, uh, sports psychology, sports nutrition, strength and conditioning, and sports medicine from a traditional sense in that we do have our own full-time primary care board-certified sports medicine physician uh, that sees a lot of our primary care injuries uh, here on site and is actually here on campus with us. And then, of course, we have our outside consultants that uh, make up the more traditional approach to sports medicine, such as orthopedic surgeons and neurologists and neurosurgeons and other healthcare professionals. So in your role day-to-day, what do, what does that mean, and, and does it differ between when school's in session and when it isn't? You know, I tell you, at our level in the Southeastern Conference or Division One colleges, there really is no in and out of season now. It seems that uh, has gotten busier, actually, in the summertime. The NCAA has recently changed some of the rules, uh, such as on basketball, which can start practicing with coaches in the month of June. And then um, also about 95% of our athletes are here on campus. So typically the summer times and the middle of winter, you're looking at when you're really wanting to ramp up your strength conditioning programs. And then during the season, the fall and the spring, when you're looking at most of your injuries, when you're doing a lot of your rehabilitation, things of that nature. And then what's your exposure? Are you doing you know broad oversight or are you working directly with athletes? What's your role? You know, I really love to still be around it. This is uh, my 20th year in in the profession. Over the past 10 years, I have moved more into administration. My goal is to be a resource for all of the staff members of health and sports performance. So I'm going to be looking at budget. I'm going to be looking at uh, hiring and uh, really developing our professionals so that they 
not only learn to uh, treat and train our athletes better, but also that they can grow as a professional and advance in their career. That's my primary objective is to make sure that they have what they need to be successful, let them practice within our philosophy and within our policies, but at the same time giving them some autonomy to make professional decisions as they grow and develop. So, you know, to give people a sense of all the people that are sort of under your care, I mean, how many varsity sports does Ole Miss have and about how many athletes are going through health and sports performance? Yeah, so we have 18 sports and we have roughly 400 athletes. And so then, you know, and you mentioned basically they're there, most of them, you know, year-round, um, and you mentioned all the different people that are part of that, that comprehensive team. How many essentially health care providers are there kind of within health and sports performance? Sure. We have right around 36. We have 36 full-time staff members, and then we have right around six graduate assistants and one intern. Uh, that's a full-time paid intern. So you're looking at close to 40 people that we have for the 400 athletes. And, uh, again, uh, those 40 professionals, what makes that up is probably uh, around, see, we have 16 now certified athletic trainers that are full-time. We have five graduate assistant athletic trainers, and then we have three physical therapists, 13 strength coaches, and then a sports psychologist and three sports nutritionists, then our full-time uh, doctor. So this idea of sort of comprehensive health care really lines up in a sense with what's happening with the general public with a lot of uh, moving toward more collaborative care models and things of that nature. How much have you seen um, in the athletic college athletic setting, how much have you seen this evolve even in the last five years? How different is what health and sports performance offers at Ole Miss now versus what was there five years ago, maybe ten years ago? Well, you know, I, I don't like to constantly brag on Ole Miss, but I do have to say that we were one of the leaders in this particular trend. It was not my original idea, but I was fortunate enough back in 2003 to I actually think that I was burnt out on sports medicine, and I became the director of rehabilitation or the lead physical therapist at Nissan Motor Company in Canton, Mississippi. And when I got to Nissan, I noticed that their model was much different than what I was used to in the sports medicine world. I noticed that inside of that plant of 6,000 employees, they had doctors and nurse practitioners, pharmacists, athletic trainers, and fitness instructors, and all working together to make sure those workers were on the line. So one of the first ideas that I brought to our athletic director was to make this a comprehensive approach, just like Nissan Motor Company uh, had at the time in 2004. And so we first brought on board a physical therapist, and the idea was not to take complete control of the rehabilitation of the athlete, but it would ensure our athletes postoperatively would get one-on-one -on -one physical therapy and one-on-one -on -one rehabilitation versus one athlete trainer treating five or six athletes at one time. And so the physical therapist sees them three times a week, and the athlete trainer sees them two or three times a week. In what traditionally may be the home exercise program, it would be carried out by the athlete trainer. So we did that all the way up until the time the athlete becomes functional, and then they turn back over to the athlete trainer, and they take them through the functional standpoint, sports-specific activity, and then they return them to play. So that's how it all kind of started. From that point, we introduced nutrition, and then it became that we needed uh, psychology. 
So we just steadily, over the past 10 years, added these professionals. But at the same time, the way we utilize them is that something as simple as an evaluation of an athlete on a particular injury, we have certain questions on our eval forms that capture red flags or may raise some red flags that we may need to bring in a nutritionist or a sports psychologist or what have you. So that is how we started operating here at Ole Miss. And in the world of Division One sports and recruiting and things of that nature, other colleges started adding that on. And that's not to say that Ole Miss was the very first to do that all over the country, but we certainly were at the forefront in the Southeastern Conference. So I'm sure there are multiple benefits of, of doing something comprehensive like this, but but is there one thing that sort of most benefited? In other words, is, is it just the the efficiency of having all the, the way these different healthcare providers can communicate to one another when everything's within the system? In other words, what most gets better, if that makes sense, in terms of working in a system like this? We think the outcome is, is what is really affected. If you look about 10 or 15 years ago, there was a lot of tension between athletic trainers and strength coaches traditionally at a lot of colleges because what would happen is, is the athlete would get hurt or have surgery, and then they would disappear into the athletic training room for about 8 weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, or until they returned. And then they get a knock on the door uh, from the strength coach say, hey, is the athlete ready? And you say, yes, it's been four months. We discharged them over to you. Well, at that point in time, the strength coach would then have to start back from the very beginning and reteach them certain movements because they did not know what the athletic trainers had already been doing. So there was a disconnect from rehabilitation and function. And so what this has allowed us to do is now the strength coaches know exactly how the athletic trainers are, are progressing them and the athletic trainers know exactly the type of lifts and the type of training to prepare the athletes for once they are able to be turned back over to the strength coaches. And what we're finding here is that we are able to implement our strength and conditioning programs much, much sooner. From day one, postoperatively, the strength coaches are working with our athletes in some form or fashion. And also what we are finding is, is that the strength coaches have such a valuable knowledge of functional exercises that we can implement early on in rehabilitation. But then also we started noticing that, hey, they can be getting stronger. They can start working toward functional movement. But what is the nutrition that the athlete is taking in? Is that delaying healing? Is there anything that we can do from a nutrition perspective that can increase or get them back out onto the field or get them back to a healthier uh, functional recovery sooner. And so the nutritionists come over and screen every postoperative athlete and sit down with them, go through a nutrition journal, plan meals for them, and advise them and educate them on the types of vitamins and minerals and, and nutrition that they need to be taking in based on their type of surgery or whatever their issue may be. The outcome has been we're seeing people get back faster. We're seeing people uh, return to a higher level. And ultimately what we hope to find over the next five or six, ten years as athletes come back and visit our campuses is that they come back and say, you know what, what I learned about nutrition, what I learned about psychology and strength and conditioning and just overall fitness, I'm still using today. So it's made me a better person. 
So on a very specific level, even somebody that you know uh, who's not an athlete, right, not a, not in the college system, who goes and sees a physical therapist, often their expectations for uh, what may be the problem may may not actually line up with with what their problem is. And, and I mentioned that in terms of uh, we would all like to be in a situation or hope that we're in a situation in our healthcare where when we have a problem, we go to somebody who says uh, it's not just this, it's that, and gets us to the right person. And that person says it's not just this, it's that, and gets us to the right person, and kind of gets that the benefit of that network um, but we all don't you know aren't in a in we aren't all going to health and sports performance at Ole Miss so I'm gonna it might be a challenging question but I'm curious for you for somebody that isn't a college athlete but wants to see their health care when, when they have it improve and be more collaborative do you have tips on how they can almost self-manage their way through the different health care professionals that they touch so that they can to some degree try and get themselves that biggest comprehensive look you know, probably what I would do is I would go with me a list of questions uh, to the physician that is ultimately the, the team captain, right, of the healthcare model. So many times what we have done in healthcare is, is we have really specialized to the point that we have somewhat forgotten that medicine is an art and it is, is very much needs to be a holistic approach. And although I don't feel that the orthopedic surgeon needs to know everything about blood pressure and blood pressure medicine. I believe the physician needs to know enough to ask certain screening questions so that they can educate their patients in that holistic approach. I say that to get to this. I believe that the best thing that a high school athlete can do or a junior high athlete can do or a 45-year-old tennis player can do is to understand that basically the mind, the emotions, the nutrition, and then the musculoskeletal system, they are three separate entities, and they cannot function properly without them all working together. So what they could do is go to their provider, go to their physician or their orthopedic surgeon, and say, okay, what impact does this have on this particular uh, surgery and, ju- and just you know, or this particular outcome with my problem. In other words, don't be scared to say to your orthopedic surgeon, I have in the past 10 years battled with depression and this orthopedic injury is really setting me back. Or I have in the past 10 years been diagnosed with anorexia and I continue to have these fractures in my foot. We have got to be more open with our doctors and our physicians when we originally report the injury so that certain red flags can be raised and so that they will know which team members they need to invite into your into your healthcare. That's tremendous advice. So we're now going to sort of shift gears here a little bit and just kind of dive into one sport, yeah. although one sport is, is probably overgeneralizing because the sport we're going to talk about is track and field. Um, and there's so many disciplines within that. So we're having this conversation while the Olympics are unfolding in Rio. Uh, Old Miss is represented, I believe, by nine athletes at the Olympics. Six of them are in the area of track and field. And so that's one of those sports, track and field, that I think Americans really only tune into pretty much every four years in terms of the elite level. Um, obviously, so many people uh, casually jog or run or, or do things that are similar to track and field. But, but that whole animal, all the different things that are within track and field, from the throws to the jumps to, the, to running, um, there, there's so many different events within the same sport. So 
from a strength and conditioning and, and rehab perspective, when you guys look at the athletes in track and field for health and sports performance, how different are those athletes from one another in terms of uh, what their needs are, in terms of development? Are they pretty similar to one another, or are, say, throwers more similar to football players than they are to runners, and leapers more similar to basketball players than they are to runners, and, and so on? You know, you may find this a, a way to uh, escape that question, but I'm going to tell you, they are very much the same, but yet they are very, very much different. What I mean by that is is each of these athletes, all athletes, no matter if it is tennis or throwing or jumpers or pole vaulters or sprinters, we have to start in the athletic position. So we want to train our athletes from the ground up. And we want to train them explosively. We want to train them with speed. We want to train them with strength. Now let's look at how are they different. Our philosophy is is you must train them sport specifically. So if you walk into a the weight room here at Ole Miss, you will find the number one uh, shot putter in the country, Raven Saunders. What you will see her doing as a thrower here at Ole Miss is lifting with a heavy, heavy load with a safety bar squat. But what that thrower's coach, John Smith, is trying to accomplish is trying to increase the most amount of force that you can. If you look at the, the world of throwing and really dive into those biomechanics, it's often said that the shot put and the discus generate more torque than any other sport that you can ever participate in. And so what you're going to see in our weight room with those athletes is lots of heavy squats, lots of, of a heavy power clean, and then uh, lots of heavy deadlift. Now, their volume is going to uh, increase at different times of the year depending on when they need to peak and follow a schedule so that, so that Raven can peak in the Olympics. That's when we want her to be the strongest. And so we designed those programs based on the fact that she has got to get in a ring and spin. And right before she throws, she has got to get enough bend in that knee to accelerate through her ankles and her knees and her hips and her shoulder. And so you're going to look at a lot of what they call triple extension uh, with her we're not going to see a lot of lunges and a lot of uh, bench press and a lot of single joint exercises with our throwers. Okay, If you progress over into our jumpers, how they differ from our throwers, you're going to see them in our weight room, and you're probably going to go, you know what, I thought the best squat is when you get down to 90 degrees. Why are they only going 45 degrees and then up? Well, if you talk to our jumps coaches, what you don't want to do is you don't want to create a habit of when you run up to the high jump bar right before you explode off the ground to squat down too deep. Because if you squat down too deep, it's going to throw your mechanics off and you're going to hit the bar when you go over. But what they do want is they want you to be very explosive in that last 20 degrees coming from up from a squat. And so we're going to squat them, but we're not going to take them down very low at all, but we are going to load them up with a lot of weight. Then you just look at you know, pole vaulters. How do we train them different? We train them with incredible core strengthening, incredible body weight. For example, the number one pole vaulter 
in the world at one point in time, and certainly in, our, in the country right now, is right here in Oxford, Mississippi, Sam Kendricks. Sam Kendricks can literally, we have a rope hanging from the ceiling. He literally can turn upside down and walk up that rope with his arms and hands. That's just how strong he is. You don't see him in the weight room ever bench pressing and doing overhead press and things of that nature, but you do see him doing lots of high volume, lots of repetitions with pull-ups, chin-ups, lots of core stuff, lots of abdominal work. And then, of course, our distance runners, we know they're going to get all kinds of volume on their legs, right? Three or four days a week, they're running all kinds of mileage uh, on those legs. So there's really no need for us to bring them in and do uh, four sets of ten on the squat and pound their legs like that. What we would do is we would decrease their volume as well, add enough weight on there, but probably only only lift them two times a week, whereas the other athletes are going to be lifting three or four times a week. Does that give you an idea of how we kind of... Absolutely. And so what's interesting about this is, is you're being very thoughtful and you're, you're trying to design exactly the movement they need and, and give them the training they need to pull out that movement. And that leads me to a question of um, how do you do that without potentially increasing the chance, say, of, of kind of overuse injuries from doing the same repetitive motion over and over again? And again, on the one hand, you're trying to prepare them by, by having them strengthen in the area where they're, they're going to have that motion. But is cross-training a part of this, or, or where does that factor in? Or, or is it if you focus the training so specifically on the motion, does that reduce that risk? You know, what, we're, what we find is, is that you have, to ch- you have to change the stimulus. It's uh, a lot of times repetitive injuries is, yes, of course, it is the repetitive motion. But sometimes what we forget is that if you will just change the amount of weight on the bar or the amount of repetitions with that same exercise, then you've changed the stimulus, which is um, allowing your body to have to adapt differently throughout the year. And so... What we have found is is that when we program, it's all about programming. You certainly want to uh, write your strength and conditioning programs to where every three weeks that stimulus is changing somewhat. You're either adding more weight, you're decreasing reps, you're introducing another lift, but you have to constantly have some variations. Even though you still may be doing what we would call your core lifts. We've got to have those core lifts in there because that's what they do in their sport. But if you just change certain variables, like the amount of weight or the number of repetitions, you can keep the body kind of guessing and therefore it doesn't get those overuse type of injuries from the wear and tear, the same amount of weight day in and day out, same force on those tendons and soft tissue structures. So um, let, let's do this. You know, track and field. There are so many high school students uh, or junior high students who get involved at some level in track and field, and not all of them aspire to compete at the collegiate level necessarily. Uh, but those who who take their competition seriously, you guys, you know, to to get an athlete who is going to be on the Ole Miss uh, track and field team, clearly they have a, a very high level. But they haven't worked through a program, we can assume, like they get at health and sports performance, for example. So what, what's, the biggest, what's the biggest lesson they learn when they first come into the program in terms of how they need to change to prepare? And I ask that question in terms of, maybe put another way, 
if I'm a high school student, and maybe we should just go through those different disciplines again, um, if I'm a high school thrower, what am I probably not doing a good enough job enough now in my preparation for that maybe I could do? If I'm a distance runner, what maybe am I not doing enough that I probably should do based on your experience of, of watching those athletes take that transition from high school level into the collegiate level? Yeah, so we are very much firm believers in taking the uh, evidence-based approach to uh, high school athletics. We firmly believe that if a coach has told you you have potential in track and field as a thrower or a jumper, uh, pole vaulter, we really still want to see those athletes playing other sports. We don't want them specializing year-round in one particular sport uh, in high school. So what we would advise that athlete to do is, number one, make yourself a better athlete. Make sure you have great flexibility in your hips. Make sure that your core is really strong. Get with somebody, get with a nutritionist to make sure that you're taking in the right number of calories and not just from a calorie standpoint, but what is making up those calories. So as a high school athlete, I want to make sure that I'm very flexible in my hips. I'm able to I'm able to do an overhead squat with a broom handle. I'm able to get down below 90 degrees at my knees and in my hips uh, because that has a huge correlation to just overall strength and power. And then make sure my high school coaches are really watching me when I'm in the weight room for just good technique. We as college coaches love to get a very strong athlete, but even more important than that is we want an athlete that's had good sound teaching and technique because we can get you stronger while you're here. Now, specifically to the world of track and field, take, for example, Raven Saunders. Some people may think she started throwing the shot put or the discus when she was in the sixth grade, and it just wouldn't be true. She was just an incredible, great athlete that had the body type to be very strong. She never went out for track and field to her senior year of uh, high school. Same thing with Connie Price-Smith, who is actually representing the USA track and field uh, female team, women's team, as the head track coach. She is our Ole Miss track and field head coach, men's and women's. Same thing with her. She was a great basketball player, and then she became a thrower after she finished her eligibility at Southern Illinois. So, what we want to find in the world of throwing is we just want to find those people who can move, who can explode, and then who just have that competitive nature, competitive side. If you think about the world of track and field, track and field is really taking an athlete and taking them through a series of workouts and then testing them. The race would be the testing or the the meet would be the testing. But it's really no different than taking a football player and sending them through an off-season workout and at the end of that off-season workout, testing them and maxing them out, checking their speed out, and then letting them go through spring practice. So what we want a high school athlete to do is just get sound nutrition, look at their flexibility, great lifting techniques, and then you know obviously perform well in the sport that you aspire to be in, get noticed somewhere in the recruiting world at your high school meets, get your name out there, and then when you get to college, You'll be an athlete that, even if you're a little raw, we've got the professionals here or any of uh, Division One schools have the professionals to uh, really develop you into and uh, specialize you in that one particular sport. 
So let's close out with this. If I'm the parent of a high school student and, and you know, again, whether that student has college aspirations or not, um, you know, you already mentioned about sports specialization, that need to diversify, and that's something a parent can watch out for and make sure that their child uh, diversifies their sport and, and becomes a well-rounded athlete. You know, beyond that, you mentioned, you know, making sure they get the, the proper training. How, how can a parent looking at their child in, in high school know uh, whether their child is getting the, the, the proper training they need at their high school? Certainly some high schools are going to have um, tremendous training advice uh, for, for their high school athletes, um, but many will not. And, and so what can a parent look out for? Uh, what should they do to ensure that their child is, is safe, first of all, um, but also developing in a way that, that's positive? You know, what I would do is I would get involved. I would listen to the type of programs that uh, you're putting on right now. I would read as much as I can. Um, you don't have to turn yourself into a coach or into a physical therapist as a parent, but you do need to be a student of the game. I would first and foremost do that. Then, as I get involved, just going out and watching practices and just uh, going out to the games, what are the injury rates how many non-contact injuries are the teams having? How much fatigue is my daughter or my son coming home with uh, to where they just can't even hardly finish their homework? A great high school coach is going to have balance. They're going to really emphasize, yes, we need to work hard here at practice, but we're going to have quality practice. We're not going to just have quantity practice. So what I would do is, is take a visit out there to the practice and see – See if they're moving from drill to drill and really look at how much they're working on their drills and their, their, their actual sport versus how much they are just doing conditioning at the end of practice. But first and foremost is just get involved. Get involved and you'll start picking up uh, the sport. Do as much reading as you can, but then just kind of look for balance in your son and daughter's life to make sure they're getting enough rest, enough nutrition, and then kind of start looking at injury rates if there's tons of injuries on the team, then, hey, there's some questions that we need to kind of start asking. And then if they need some sort of maybe, you know, outside analysis, I mean, is, is that a role that a that physical therapist can play to there, you know, as well in terms of just sort of saying, okay, well, this is sort of what I see in terms of the uh, the strength and flexibility of your child and, and what their conditioning seems to be. Um, obviously, other members of the healthcare team could do that as well, but would that be another way, too, of sort of gauging uh, the, the relative strength and stability of their, their kid? It really would, and, you know, I think uh, not to get on a, uh, a political speech here or anything like that, but I, I really advise parents and really hope that parents really emphasize to their school boards and to their administrators that there needs to be health care professionals that are knowledgeable in sports in the school system. And that person needs to have the autonomy to make decisions for what is best for that child's health care that is not influenced by any coach that is out there. We talk so much about having great English teachers and math teachers and science teachers, and that is very, very important. But I also think a huge priority needs to be in getting athletic trainers actually funded by the school systems or physical therapists that are funded by the school systems into there so that these athletes have an advocate to go to without fear of any retribution of any coaches 
And so that's very important. We've got to continue to create a system of healthcare professionals that are involved in the high schools that can make autonomous decisions independently and make those decisions in the back of their mind of what's best for the athlete, what are the standards of care, and what I'm doing is that really evidence-based. One of the other things that I think is very huge that we need to really take a look at is how early our student-athletes are being exposed to street drugs, to improper nutritional supplements, and to anabolic steroids. As parents, as coaches, and teachers, the best advice I can give you is that really get involved in their life and remember that alcohol and marijuana are performance dehancers. They do not make you a better athlete. They slow your heart rate down. They slow your mental thinking. They decrease your hand-eye coordination. All of the things that you need as an athlete, marijuana and alcohol and many other drugs, but those are very, very popular in junior high and high school, make you a worse athlete. On the supplement forefront, if you are already taking protein powders and creatine and amino acids as a high school athlete and you are first or second string and you're you're competing and all of a sudden you're fortunate enough to get a a scholarship and you go to a college and there you are at third string. Well, you've already been doing these supplements, these amino acids and powders and creatine all the way through junior high and high school. What is the next step for you to go to if you're a big supplement believer? You have no other step to go to but anabolic steroids. So there we've created a temptation as parents at the junior high and the high school level. Be very careful. Get good nutrition. Get plenty of rest. and You will not need any type of supplements. But I do want to emphasize that as 5th, 6th, 7th graders, more and more so every day now, they're being introduced to marijuana, cocaine, alcohol. And we have to be, we cannot ignore that this is decreasing our health care and making us worse athletes. Shannon Singletary, great advice. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, have me on any time. Um, I appreciate what you guys are doing, and, and I think uh, the more we can get this type of uh, knowledge out uh, to the people, to the student-athletes, uh, I think it can only help. For more on avoiding overuse injuries or for other tips for youth athletes, go to MoveForwardPT.com. I'm Jason Bellamy. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guest is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at MoveForwardPT.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit MoveForwardPT.com slash radio.